1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're kind of milking the last chapter here, as you could tell. We're going to look at verses 19 through 22. The title of this sermon is How to Handle Prophetic Utterances. That's important. That's, that's the theme of the text. That's what's being taught here. How to handle prophetic utterances is what we're going to talk about. Now, as we're talking about this, uh, there's much more that could be said about the general subject of the New Testament gift of prophecy than I'm able to say, or maybe should say, in this sermon. So I want to recommend a couple resources for you. Uh, some time ago, I taught a whole sermon on uh, the New Testament gift of prophecy, and we've reposted that on the homepage of the website for you to revisit this week. So go to RealityCarp or RealityVentura.com, and it'll be one of the banners there. That teaching will be more in-depth than the teaching today. Uh, have a little more doctrinal meat about that particular gift, and it will have many more examples than I'm able to share today about how that's worked out in my life and in the life of our church. So that could be of great interest to you. If you're interested in uh, the gift of prophecy, please go and check out that message. And then the second one is my favorite book on the subject. This is called The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today by Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is my favorite theologian, a modern theologian. He wrote a book on just New Testament gift of prophecy. This is it. I love this book. This has been of great help to me through the years. I return to it frequently. I don't think we currently have this at the book table, uh, but we'll try to get some for you, but you can get that easily, Amazon or someone else. I highly recommend it to you. It's, you know, it's a it's a little bit of a book. It's got a few pages. So maybe start with the sermon. If you want to go further, grab this book, and hopefully that helps you guys. Our Ventura campus is joining us for the sermon. Let's let them know that we love them. And we'll read our text now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Paul writes and says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would teach us clearly from your word today. We thank you, God, that you speak to us in your word. You've given us full and clear and wonderful revelation in your word. We also thank you that you speak to us as your sons and daughters. You lead us in our lives. You give us prophetic insights. Thank you for that wonderful biblical truth. We ask today that with the help of the Holy Spirit, through your holy word, we be taught about that, that you please anoint me to do that in a way that's faithful and helpful, and that you would please give us ears to hear that you would enliven our hearts to the truth of you speaking to us prophetically and leading us for our good and for your glory, and that we would be responsible in response to your word with how we do that. We ask these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a wonderful truth of Scripture that God desires to lead his people. Of course, he leads us through his word, and we have the written word of God, which is the very word of God. But he also leads us, as the New Testament would say, prophetically. He speaks to us about particular instances and times and situations in our lives. 
and he'll lead us in his will. Lead me, O Lord, in paths of righteousness for thy name's sake, as the psalmist said in Psalm 23. And, and much of the story of my life and much of the story of our church, and I expect many of your lives, has been the story of God leading you prophetically. After all, it doesn't say in the pages of the Bible who you should marry. But it's of interest to God. And we can certainly ask God. And sometimes God just, you know, gives us a brain and gives us wisdom and expects us to use that. Other times God gives us prophetic leading. I had prophetic leading to marry my wife, Kate. I woke up one morning and knew that the Holy Spirit was speaking to me that Kate was the one. Now, I've heard that from many of you many times when you were wrong. (laughs) Thankfully, I wasn't that time. That happens. You know, the birth of this church is a prophetic story. God leading prophetically. My wife and I woke up at our family cabin out in uh, Montana one morning, and we just felt the Holy Spirit say, I'm calling you to start a church in Carpinteria. It was just clear. It wasn't audible, but it was as clear as could possibly be. And in response to that, with others, prayerfully, we started this church. But that was a, a prophetic word from the Lord. Choices in my life about vocation have been prophetic leadings from the Lord. When we started the Ventura campus, out of this campus, that was a prophetic leading of the Lord. That was God speaking to us that we ought to do that. All of our church plants have prophetic stories to them. Even the birth of my daughter, Fifi, or I should say maybe the conception, was prophetic. I was in my office one morning studying the word of God, and you know it was shortly after Daisy had died, and my wife and I were not planning, did not want to have any other kids, and My wife walked in my office early in the morning and says, I really feel like the Lord just spoke to me that he wants to give us a child as a gift. And the moment she said that, it was one of those instances where the Holy Spirit just quickens it to you and just know that is a word from the Lord for me. By golly, Fifi was conceived immediately. (laughs) Too much of a visual. I know, I'm sorry. She was a gift from God. That was a prophetic word and and, and the prophetic work of God. In fact, her name, Theodora, means supreme gift in Greek because it was a response to the Holy Spirit speaking to us saying, I have something for you as a gift. Now, God loves you, church. God loves you. And you are his sons and his daughters. He cares infinitely and intimately for and about your life. And so he wants to lead you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to give the church insight in his word supremely, of course. But additionally, though it can be messy, prophetically. And that's what the text is about. And the backdrop to the text is this truth that what has happened since Pentecost, the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit came on the church, is that all of God's people receive the Holy Spirit and so all of God's people may prophesy. That's the backdrop to the text. That's Christian doctrine. Since Pentecost, all of God's people receive God's Spirit and so there is a possibility that we may all hear and speak prophetically. That is a Christian reality. 
that we might at certain times and certain ways through the work of the Holy Spirit know God's mind and speak it or act upon it or pray for it, whatever it is. The book of Acts makes this abundantly clear in the second chapter, verses 16 through 18. This is the day of Pentecost and people are watching the reaction of the church and they're saying, what's going on here? And Peter speaks up and says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, starting right then at Pentecost, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That's the reality of the church. God's spirit in us, God's love and so wanting to speak to us and lead us, and that real Possibility, And so we then, as God's people in response to Scripture, ought to expect prophetic utterances amongst God's people to be normative. Not absent, certainly. Not even rare. Not, not the exception, but normative. God speaks to his people in this way. Look at what the book of 1 Corinthians says about a couple verses. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. The New Testament places high value on this. Verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 14. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. We see at the outset from a couple verses that prophecy within the church, knowing and speaking God's mind, ought to be normative And it is good. The reality is sometimes in the church it's rare and we are often wary of it. Understood. Because of misuses which happen, because of abuses, because of misunderstandings, because of things that were said that were false, because of disappointments. I I get all that. But that's part of Christianity. That's part of the gig. Did did someone tell you at some point that Christianity would never be messy? It wasn't me. It wasn't the New Testament. So I understand sometimes it's rare and sometimes it's scary, but it really is good. At least God intends it to be and it ought to be normative. Now, a couple of important distinctions. In the early church, there were men and women who were specifically called prophets and prophetesses. Agabus and Judas and Silas. And you'll remember Philip's four daughters. Can you imagine that household? Four prophetess daughters. Wonderful. In the New Testament, people specifically call prophets and prophetesses. And, and some of our Pentecostal and charismatic friends within the church believe that there are the same sort, type, authoritative prophets in the same way and measure in the church today. That's, that's a debate. That's a discussion. It is not the subject of the text that's in front of us. The text is not talking about prophets But the text is rather addressing the possibility of normal Christians prophesying. 
There's a distinction there. And, and normal Christians prophesying, knowing God's will or God's mind or insight from God on something and sharing it, speaking it, that's different from authoritative prophets and apostles in the New Testament. That is different. It's not the subject of the sermon, but there's, there's a difference there. And, and the backdrop that we can all agree on with that discussion is this. We all together affirm the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture. We all together affirm the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture. That God is able to tell us everything we need to know through his written word. The sufficiency of Scripture. Everything that we truly need for doctrine and life and godliness is found in the written word. And yet God has this other gift where he will also speak to us about things that are not necessarily in the written word. Always consistent with, in line with, but other things in our lives. But we have now a completed and closed canon of scripture so that no one today receives or speaks revelation that is authoritative, binding, and infallible in the way that the Word of God is. Did you hear that? We have a closed and completed canon of Scripture. So no one today receives or speaks revelation that is absolutely authoritative, binding, and infallible in the way that the very Word of God is. That's a big deal. There's a big difference there. And we'll talk about some of those nuances in a few moments. There was then, it is to say, a uniqueness to New Testament and Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles as well. Galatians 2, Ephesians, excuse me, 2.20 says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, but then this foundation... As God's very word was given to us through the apostles and the prophets. What we have today, and, and, and mark this, what we have today are secondary and subsidiary kinds of prophetic gifts and ministry. Not, in my opinion, akin to Old Testament, New Testament office of prophet or apostle, but secondary and subsidiary kinds of prophetic gifts and ministry. What we're saying by that is that God in his love for his people gives us at times through the Holy Spirit things like extraordinary insight into scripture. Gives us things like extraordinary understanding of scripture's application to both the believer and the world. Prophetic insight, how does that apply? What does that mean for the world today? How does it speak into the world or to the church? And undoubtedly the one that we're most interested in, God's spirit gives us extraordinary insight into his particular will for particular people in particular situations. We can call all these things prophetic insights, or prophetic gifts, knowing and speaking God's mind about something. Here's a slightly more robust definition of prophetic gifts. 
speaking forth in merely human words. That's an important phrase. We'll unpack it in a little bit. Speaking forth in merely human words, something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. See how that works there? God in his sovereignty at his times of choosing reveals something to our mind that is supernatural in nature. We could not have known it any other way. And then we think that through or we communicate it in merely human terms. Why do we say merely human words? Because we don't want to say in the very words of God because that's reserved for scripture. God reveals something to our mind and we speak it forth. That's the concept, that's the definition of prophetic utterances in merely human words. Now, throughout Scripture, that sort of thing, prophetic insight, can include two things, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is something that looks forward. God telling us something about the future and then speaking about that. We see that in Scripture. Forthtelling is more about the present. How does God feel? Or what does God want? Or what is God saying at that moment to people. There's foretelling having to do with the future and forthtelling, something God wants us to know currently. And surprisingly, about two-thirds of all prophetic activity in the Bible is actually forthtelling. God speaking to his people in the present, something that he wants them to know. And then some of it has to do with the future. And that's normally where we use the word prophecy, Bible prophecy, eschatology, those kind of things. But the gift of prophecy and prophetic insight may include either or or both. Something about the future or something about the present that is revealed to us supernaturally that we may then perhaps communicate in merely human words. What that tells us is good news. That reminds us that we have a God who both knows what is happening and what will happen. A God who knows both what is happening and what will happen. That's wonderful news. Because we are sometimes overwhelmed by our circumstances and intimidated about the future. And God knows it all. God is sovereign over it all. God is in control of it all. And sometimes because he loves us so dearly, he'll reveal certain things to us for our good and for his glory. That gives us as his people information that we could not have had otherwise. This is a love gift of God. Him leading his people in present circumstances and in light of future things. That is the book of Acts. That's what it is. That's what happened in the book of Acts. Spirit came upon the church and then the spirit led the church forward in life and in mission and in ministry. One little vignette. I'll just read you a couple of verses from Acts 16, verses six through 10. I'll just read it. This is about Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy on a missionary trip. It says, and they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. God clearly communicated to them to something about the present. Don't go there and do that. Verse seven, 
And when they had come to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. God's speaking to them, his opinion on a matter. No, don't go there. Don't do that. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. Verse 9 of Acts 16 says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's the tone and the tenor, the flavor of the book of Acts. Now, the hard part for us is it simply says the Spirit forbid them to do this. The Spirit of Jesus said, no, don't go there. We aren't given the details as to what that looked like. That would have been a nice detail to have in there, Luke. What did that sound like? What did that look like? How did that happen? How did you know? We're we're not told. Was it an impression? Maybe. Was it an audible thing? Gosh, I don't know. Was it through prayer that they discovered it as a group? Was it written on a sign somewhere on the way to Bithynia? I don't know. We're not told. And then Paul has this vision. And they say, that's it. That's God speaking to us. We are supposed to go into Macedonia and do ministry there. And that was then how the church in Thessalonica, the book that we're studying, was birthed, was through that prophetic leading. Their church was birthed through prophetic leading. Our church was birthed through prophetic leading. This is meant to be normative Christianity. Mysterious for sure. But real nonetheless. This is to be expected among God's people. So the text that's before us then is telling us that prophetic utterances are to be both heard and tested. Heard and tested. The the text is wanting to keep us from an attitude or a church existence where prophetic utterances are unheard and or untested. It's trying to keep us from that. Again, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. The text is telling us that we are not to reject them outright, but nor are we to accept them wholesale. We're to be willing to listen to prophetic words, and we are then obligated to evaluate them. Again, verse 21, examine everything carefully. Prophetic words amongst God's people are not to go unheard, nor are they to go untested. Now, be mindful of the context here. Remember what Paul is not talking about in this text. Paul is not instructing them and us about how to deal with people who claim to be prophets and are not. This is not a false prophet text, though those are multitudinous in the New Testament. 
That was a real problem in the New Testament. That's a real problem today. False prophets, people who claim to be speaking from God on a regular basis and are not. And there's lots of instruction in the New Testament about how to deal with that. And there is some, some intersection there, but that's not what the text is about today. Again, be mindful of the context. The context here is the local church. He's writing to a church whom he knows and who knows one another, believers in relationship. And this was a church that was generally in a good state. And as he's closing his epistle to them, he's just giving them these staccato blasts of things to remember, right? Remember to encourage one another. Remember to value your leaders. Remember to live in peace. This is the previous verses. Remember to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with each other. Don't return evil for evil. Remember to rejoice. Remember to pray. Remember to give thanks. And don't grieve the Spirit by despising prophetic utterances. Hear them, but test them. That's the context in which he's speaking. So the idea then is somebody in the fellowship comes and says, I think or I believe or I feel that the Lord has said to me this. And then perhaps they want to share it. Not everything is meant to be shared, but then, then perhaps if it's an utterance, it is, it, it, it's going to be shared. So the text is teaching us, how do we deal with that? How do we handle prophetic utterances? It's not a text about false prophets. It's not about how to deal with a person that's a false prophet. It's about how to deal with the content of a message from faithful Christians within the body together. So how do we then do that? How do we examine prophetic utterances carefully? Well, the first point is self-evident. We do not despise prophetic utterances. Other translations use words like contempt, hold in contempt, or scoff at. The idea is to discount. The idea is to act negatively toward. Now, that, again, that, that, that can happen to us from time to time because sometimes we hear things we don't want to hear. Sometimes we hear them from people we don't want to hear them from. And sometimes... There's mistakes that are really consequential. And so it can create messes in the church. Listen to me. The church is a mess. This church, Carpentry Campus, turns 12 years old today. It is as messy as it's ever been. I don't think there's any point until glory when we say the church isn't a mess. And so if your church experience is simply to endeavor to avoid messiness, stay home. Watch a sermon online. I think when you get a bunch of people together about the stuff in the world that matters most to them, bumbling sinners saved by grace, there's going to be some mess. But what the text is reminding us is in the midst of that mess, in the midst of the mistakes and the errors, we won't define those in a moment, what we can't do is start to despise, scoff at, holding contempt, prophetic utterances. They're to be valued. They're to be heard as well as expected. To do so would be to quench the Holy Spirit, verse 19. That's what he's referring to. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. 
And the, co- the connection here is by despising, scoffing at, holding in contempt, discounting, not being willing to hear prophetic utterances. Now, what does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? There are all sorts of ways that the believer might quench the Holy Spirit or the church might quench the Holy Spirit. And spoken of in different ways in the scripture. The word picture, literally that word was used to extinguish a light or a fire. That was quench. To put out a light, to put out a fire. That's the idea of the Greek word. That's a literal picture. So it can be translated in a very wooden way. Do not put out the Spirit's light or fire. But what it is, is a figure of speech. It's kind of akin to our figure of speech. This is, oh, don't throw a wet blanket on the party. You know that one? Do you know that one or I make that one up? We know that one, or we sometimes use it toward one another. Don't be such a wet blanket. You know what I mean? The, the idea of that figure of speech is to, and here's the same idea of this figure of speech, quench the spirit. The idea of that is to suppress or stifle. Now there's some weight in the text. By mishandling prophetic utterances, we may suppress or stifle the person in the work of the Holy Spirit. What we want to do in the church is let the light of the Holy Spirit shine and let his fire burn to press the metaphor. Not to have a wet blanket sort of attitude that suppresses or stifles. So Paul here is commanding the church to avoid any activity that will thwart the Spirit's work. The particular example he uses is the regulation of prophecy in the church. And when we despise, when we reject, when we refuse to hear, when we discount, when we treat with contempt, when we scoff at prophetic utterances, we are in some way, to some degree, quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, if we look at the purpose of the New Testament gift of prophecy, we'll see why it is important and valuable not to despise it. Look at the sampling of verses from 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church are for the common good. We already read this one. We'll read it again. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for, mark these, edification, exhortation, and consolation. Three synonymous words are for strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. God gives prophetic gifts insights and leadings to his church in order to strengthen, encourage, and comfort her. Edification, exhortation, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. Learning, exhortation. Prophecy has the tremendous potential for these things. The common good, strengthening, comforting, encouraging, edifying, learning, exhorting. 
Therefore, in 1 Corinthians 12.31, the gift of prophecy is referred to as a greater or most helpful gift. It's really a love gift of God, again, to the church, and its purpose is for the building up. And another purpose of it is to increase our sense that God is among us. Increase the sense that God is among us. I'll I'll read an excerpt from 1 Corinthians 14. I'll read verses 24 and 25. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So Paul's using a hypothetical there. He's talking about order in the church. He's saying in the previous verse, if if someone comes into the church and they're not a believer and everyone's speaking in tongues, they're going to think you're crazy. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. But if everyone, hypothetically speaking, is prophesying, secrets of his heart are going to be revealed by the Spirit of God. He's going to realize that God is certainly among you as the church is going to fall on his face and worship. Now, it ought not to only have that effect in the life of unbelievers, but in our lives as well. Part of the service of the gift of prophecy is to increase in our individual lives and in our lives together, in the lives of our families, in our endeavors, the sense that God is truly with me. I mean, isn't it true? Didn't Jesus say, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age? And there are many ways in which that is true. One of the ways in which we experience that abundant truth is by his prophetic leading. God is certainly among us. So as the church and in church, we should expect God to speak to us. We should expect God to speak to us through his written word, supreme and sufficient, and we should expect God to speak to us prophetically. And that is part of the culture of reality. We expect that. All of the realities have prophetic stories of how they are birthed, how, how, how we were led through prophetic leading. I daily, I daily count on the Lord to speak to me about all sorts of things. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't or I just don't hear or something's going on. But this is a reality in the life of the believer and this is part of the culture of reality. We expect God to speak to us prophetically. Now the culture has a particular flavor here at reality. We really see it practicing on a more interpersonal level. Small groups, hanging out with friends, one-on-one, in the foyer, stuff like that. We also certainly hear it through the preach word of God. There's prophetic stuff happening when the word is being preached. Some of you know that. Sometimes you'll hear someone preaching, and you're like, he knows. <laughs> I don't know. But God does know. Prophetic insight. The way that we don't normally see it working here, though it used to happen this way much more, is that someone would come up on the platform and say, I think the Lord is saying this to us. And I don't know why we don't do that that much anymore. We used to do it pretty regularly in the early days. I don't know, maybe God is stirring for us to give more attention to that through this text. I don't know, but the way that it works usually in our lives is interpersonal relationships, small groups, on the highways, 
and in the byways. Maybe the reason that it doesn't happen in the service that much is because we give tremendous place and import to the preach word of God. But there's probably room for both in the church. Remember that God's agent in all of this is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The gift of the Father, Jesus said, the person of the Holy Spirit. And so in neglecting these things, we're in some way grieving him. So do not despise prophetic utterances. God wants to bless us and lead us for our good and his glory. So then the second part of this is evaluating prophetic utterances. The idea is to examine closely for the purpose of determining authenticity. We're called to do that. They need to be heard, but they need to be tested. They shouldn't go unheard, but they should not go untested. So someone comes to you and says, I think the Lord is speaking to me about this. Or even, I think the Lord said something to me for you. And they give you this thing. What do you do with that? Well, there's five real clear, easy ways that we should test that immediately and continually. The first one is according to the clarity of Scripture. Is it consonant with, congruent with, consistent with revealed Scripture, the very Word of God? A prophetic Word of God will never contradict the written Word of God. It just will not. So we can always say when we hear something, is this consistent with the clarity of the word of God? In Acts chapter 17, Paul was preaching to the Bereans after having been in Thessalonica. And it says that they checked everything that Paul was saying against the written word to see whether or not it was so. And so then the text says of them, they were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. You should do that when you hear preaching. Don't take my word for it. Always be checking what I say or any other preacher says against the word of God. And we certainly must do that in obedience to this text. When we hear a prophetic utterance, we got to check it against the word of God. Now, again, it may be abiblical. doesn't mean it's anti-biblical. It's just not in the Bible. Should I start a church in the city of Carpinteria, in Ventura, in San Francisco, That's not even in Isaiah, and everything prophetic is in Isaiah. (laughs) Sometimes those particular things. So is it not in contradiction with the clarity of Scripture? The second one is, is it consistent with the person of Jesus? Is it consistent with the person of Jesus? We're given a test for false prophets in 1 John chapter 4. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God because not every spirit is from God. Every spirit that can say Jesus Christ came in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that cannot is not from God. Now that's a a false prophet test. This is a different text, but the idea is the same. Is what I'm hearing consistent with the person of Jesus Christ? His supremacy, his unique identity, His dual nature is fully God, fully man. His finished work upon the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his ruling, his reigning, his coming again, his lordship, his authority over the devil, his sovereignty in my life. Always got to check it with the person of Jesus. Thirdly, the integrity of the gospel. Paul said to the church in Galatia in the first chapter, 
If a man or angel or anybody else preaches to you a gospel that is contrary to the one we gave you, let them be anathema, accursed. In our language, may they go to hell. The gospel test. Any supposed word from God is never going to be contrary to the fact that humans are only saved by grace through faith and not of works that no man can boast. That we're only saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Anything that pushes us away from grace and towards salvation by works, anything that discounts the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, any of those things would not be a word from the Lord. The gospel test, the integrity of the gospel. Fourthly, the character of the message. Messenger, excuse me. This matters. The character of the messenger. This matters. This matters. Jesus gave it to us in a a false prophet test again in Matthew 7. He warns us repeatedly, there's going to be lots, lots of false prophets. And he says, you know what? You'll know them by their fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. Be aware of false prophets. You'll know them by their fruit. Again, false prophet test, but the implications are the same for a message test. Is there integrity in the life of the messenger? Or are they living a life that's totally contrary to God's will, God's righteousness, and God's word, and yet claiming to speak from God? That's just, that's just an opportunity to question. Nobody's perfect, but still, if somebody seems to be living in rebellion to God, and they're coming to you saying, I'm speaking for God, you have reason to question. And finally, the effect or the outcome of the message. Remember 1 Corinthians 14.3 said that prophecy is given to the church to strengthen, encourage, and comfort her. That doesn't mean that there won't from time to time be rebukes. Those will ultimately strengthen us. It doesn't mean that there won't from time to time be warnings. Those will ultimately encourage us. There might be hard words. Those will ultimately comfort us in Christ. But, but what is the outcome of this? Does this supposed word from the Lord create fear in me? Reason to question. Is it creating discord? Is it creating disharmony and rebellion? Reason to question. What is the outcome, the effect of the message? And then, of course, inherent in that statement is if it was foretelling, did it happen? There's a good one. Did it happen? You know, and sometimes then we, we got to wait on that. These things are not necessarily always automatic. Sometimes we hear these words, and what I always say is, thank you. I'll take that to prayer. Sometimes you've got to wait. Wayne Grew, favorite theologian, modern theologian, uh, talks about this and says this. Paul had in his mind the kind of evaluation whereby each person would weigh what is said in his or, own, his or her own mind, accepting some of the prophecy as good and helpful and rejecting some of it as erroneous or misleading. That's the idea there. Now, I, know, I know the tension of that and I'll get to it in a moment. But let me say this. That presents to us a great responsibility with prophetic utterances. Hearing and testing. 
what that does, that idea that we need to examine them in that way, and what that, that quote gets at, is that we're always going back to the word of Christ and to Christ himself. It's always pushing us to Jesus. We're not staying on the horizontal. We don't get caught up in what he said or she said or this prophetic word or that or the other. We're always pushing it right back up toward Jesus and taking it to the word of God because there's a great responsibility and carefully examining everything. There's a great responsibility. That keeps me wanting to have a sharp sword. I want to be in the word of God. So when I hear a counterfeit, I know it's a counterfeit. I want to be in the word of God so that when God is speaking in my life prophetically, which is often, I have a sense of, yeah, that lines up with his word. If your sword is dull, it's hard for you to examine carefully. It's hard for you to obey this text faithfully. It's really hard. It's why we spend time in the word of God. That is part of why we spend time in the word of God. And I want to know more than anything else in the world, the person in the work of Jesus intimately so that I know when something is in line with his character and the quality of who he is and the work that he's accomplished. It's a great responsibility. Third and final point. The text tells us to hold on to what is good and avoid what is bad. Verses 21 and 22. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Hold on to what is good and avoid what is bad. Now, the obvious question that hangs in the air is, why would there be, or why might there be, both good and bad in a supposed prophetic message? It's a valid question. I'll say as a preferatory statement that the problem is not with God who gives the message. The problem is the person who receives it. God's only ever going to say right and correct things. But we sometimes get it messed up. Now, here's what we need to remember about that. Again, the New Testament gift of prophecy is different from the Old Testament office of prophet. Very different. Old Testament prophets spoke the very words of God. And as such, among God's people, they had absolute authority in what they said. In fact, in the Old Testament, to disobey a prophet was to disobey God because they spoke forth the very words of God. And as such, they had tremendous responsibility. When they were wrong, they were held accountable with their lives. That was a lot of the Old Testament prophet. Don't mess up God's word to us or we'll kill you. Why? Because it was the very word of God. These things became the written word of God. Their words became scripture, very much in the same way as that of the New Testament apostles. Now, the New Testament gift of prophecy is not meant, nor does it give us the very word of God. And so it does not have the same authority. Again, we now have the completed canon of scripture, which holds absolute authority, which is supreme and sufficient. So now to disobey scripture is to disobey God. Big difference. To disobey scripture 
is to disobey God. Since we have the completed scriptures, the New Testament gift of prophecy is not the reporting of the very words of God. Rather, it is, again, reporting in merely human words something God has brought to mind. And there's the rub. Because God and scripture are infallible, but people and the exercising of our gifts are not infallible. Right? People and the exercising of our gifts are not infallible. God and scripture are infallible. So what we find in prophetic utterances is that sometimes we just hear incorrectly. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we think it's God and it's not. It was spaghetti sauce. Or worse, there was some sort of deception. That happens. That's why we need to be in the word of God, brothers and sisters. That's why you got to let the word of Christ dwell richly in your hearts and minds. That's why we got to memorize the word of God, know the word of God, hide the word of God in our hearts. It's absolutely imperative. Sometimes we're deceived in thinking that certain things are from God when they're not. That happens. We may hear incorrectly. We may interpret wrongly. That happens. This happens often. We may hear a prophetic word and then we assume that it means this, but it didn't mean that at all. I'll give you an example from scripture in a moment. And we may add negatively. That certainly happens, right? God may be telling us something or giving us an impression or urging us to say something and we add to it. That happens very frequently. For those reasons, that is why nobody now that we have the closed canon of scripture, should ever preface anything they say with anything that at all smells like, thus saith the Lord. Unless you're reading from the Bible, that's a wrong way to say it. Because it's a different thing. We are not infallible. So we approach this differently with humility. And yet, even with all those liabilities, We have to say in faithfulness to the word that this is part of what Christ has for his people. Speaking forth in merely human words, something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Let's look at an example of that. Here's some verses from Acts 21. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Okay, see that? There's some prophetic leading there. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. But some people in the church there were saying through the Spirit, through the Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, prophetic insight, not to step foot in Jerusalem. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound it around his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. And this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. Next. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Right? So pause right there. Look at me. Don't look at the next verse. So there's a, a, a prophetic word that was given. They're going to go to Jerusalem and there's going to be trouble. And the people interpreted that 
saying, so don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. But look at the next verse, verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now what's happening here? Paul received through another person a prophetic word that if he went to Jerusalem, he would suffer persecution. He decided to go anyway. The text is clear. That was, that was from the Holy Spirit to Paul. He decided to go anyway. Why? Because Paul knew what he's saying in 1 Thessalonians 5, that every prophetic word should be examined carefully. And Paul apparently waited out in his own mind and he judged the content of the prophecy to be right, what would happen, but the interpretation to be wrong. What should he then do? That's exactly what's happening there. They assume, gosh, we've got a word from the Lord. It, it means this. Paul heard it, weighed it out and said, no, it doesn't mean that. The content is correct. Your interpretation or your addition or your conclusion is incorrect. Those urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem had received revelation of the persecution awaiting him and were correct in reporting that, but wrong in their interpretation, application, and the implications. That's an important lesson for us because I see that happen all the time in the church. And that, in some way, is to be expected. In some way, it's okay. We're, we're going to make mistakes. And if we create a culture where nobody could ever make mistakes with their gifts, that's a bad church culture. I saw a young man some weeks ago. He's not here, so I could tell the story. And he was helping with the coffee ministry. At least I hope he's not here. And he was walking out of the kitchen with a big urn of hot liquid and he stumbled a little bit on the carpet there and slopped it. The lid wasn't on, just slopped it onto the floor. I think the young man has a gift of service. You're not here early in the morning making coffee. He is. Perhaps he has a gift of service. Made a little mistake in it. Slopped the coffee, spilled the coffee. That's okay. I have made mistakes with my teaching gift. I have made mistakes in my shepherding gift. We as a church have made mistakes with our leadership gifts and administration gifts. You may make mistakes in your gift of mercy. Gifts and their exercising are not infallible. So we may in grace and humility in a context of love and trust and trial and error make some mistakes and the interpretation and application and outcomes of prophetic words. Again, because I want to be clear, the exercising of the New Testament gift of prophecy does not produce the very word of God, but is rather reporting in merely human words something is, that God has brought to mind. So we have a great responsibility with this gift. And we need to remember that because God loves us, he wants to speak to us. He wants to lead us. You can't, you can't escape that in Scripture. It would be an odd God indeed who does not speak to his beloved. He really does. So here and examine. Hold what is good. Abstain from what is bad. 
And remember at the end of the day, in the midst of the church, it's always about Jesus Christ and his glory. It is always about Jesus Christ and his glory. If all else fails and you ever get confused and you're not sure where to look or what to do or what to think, it's always about Jesus Christ and his glory. So Paul wrote to Thessalonica and was pushing them to be a church who encouraged and built one another up, thought rightly about their leaders, endeavored to live in peace with one another, encouraged the discouraged, helped the weak, was patient with one another, ceased to return evil from evil, never forgot to rejoice, always remained in prayer, always gave thanks, and didn't want to quench the Holy Spirit, but heard and tested prophetic utterances, held to what is good, tossed away what was bad. Imagine that kind of church. Don't imagine it. Let's be that kind of church. God, that you would give us grace to do just that, to live according to your word for the glory of Jesus Christ. For these things, we need great grace. Lord, I know that what comes with this message for many people is some degree of fear and and trepidation. That you'd meet us in that, Lord, and comfort us by your Holy Spirit. We know that's not what you have for us, but thank you, Father, that you understand our wounds and the ways we've been disappointed and deceived and let down in the past. And and, and you know all the dangers that are out there. But we thank you that at the end of the day, you love us and you want to speak to us about the things in our lives because of your love. Help us to respond. Help us to hear. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Give us feet that want to obey. All for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.